This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Contemplating the union of sentiment now manifested so generally as auguring harmony and happiness to our future course, I offer to our country sincere congratulations. With those two not yet rallied to the same point, the disposition to do so is gaining strength. Facts are piercing through the veil drawn over them, and our doubting brethren will at length see that the mass of their fellow citizens, with whom they cannot yet resolve to act, as to principles and measures, think as they think, and desire what they desire. That our wish, as well as theirs, is that the public efforts may be directed honestly to the public good, that peace be cultivated, civil and religious liberty unassailed, law and order preserved, equality of rights maintained, and that state of property, equal or unequal, which results to every man from his own industry or that of his father's. When satisfied of these views, it is not in human nature that they should not approve and support them. In the meantime, let us cherish them with patient affection. Let us do them justice and more than justice in all competitions of interest. And we need not doubt that truth, reason, and their own interests will at length prevail will gather them into the fold of their country, and will complete their entire union of opinion, which gives to a nation the blessing of harmony and the benefit of all its strength. Thomas Jefferson, Second Inaugural Address, 1805 Dressed in a black suit with black silk stockings, Thomas Jefferson set off on horseback from the President's house on March 4, 1805, accompanied by his private secretary and a groom. Their destination lay just over a mile away, the as-yet-unfinished U.S. Capitol. A crowd was assembled in the Senate chamber to witness Jefferson take the oath of office and begin his second term as President of the United States. As described by historian Dumas Malone, quote, There was no spectacle to miss and little to hear. For Jefferson's inaugural address, like his first, turned out to be only partly audible. Commentators should have made some allowance for the poor acoustics of the chamber, but the president spoke in a low voice. As we shall soon come to see, despite this sedate and inauspicious start, President Jefferson's second term would be anything but quiet. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Roderick Goss for providing the intro quote for this episode. Roderick is an actor from Houston, Texas, who specializes in narration and voice acting. After getting his start in college theater, he went on to serve the U.S. overseas and was a popular military broadcaster on AFN Europe for five years. Upon his return to the States, he got involved with local theater as well as radio, TV, and film. During the COVID pandemic, he has collaborated with friends on Zoom Shakespeare, and the company releases new performances every Saturday evening on Facebook. You can search for Zoom Shakespeare on Facebook, or I'll have a link to the Facebook page on the Source Notes page for this episode. If you'd like to contact Roderick for voice or acting work, you can send him an email at rka1330 at yahoo.com. 
His email address will also be available on the source notes page for this episode. As we discussed in episode 3.25, the unremarkable inauguration came immediately after the drama of the impeachment trial of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. Following Chase's acquittal, many members of Congress left town, not even waiting to see the inauguration. Though it seems like both in and outside of Washington, there was not nearly the excitement in 1805 as there had been four years prior. The reality was that Jefferson had work to do, and part of that work involved finding a new attorney general. Jefferson had managed to maintain a stable cabinet for four years, but on December 26, 1804, Levi Lincoln sent his official resignation letter to the president. Though professing his appreciation for, quote, your friendship and confidence, Lincoln cited both his, quote, young and numerous family in want of parental care and assistance in the course of their education, as well as, quote, the malignity of political enemies as the reasons prompting him to retire from public life. Though the president replied that, quote, it would have been my greatest happiness to have kept together to the end of my term, our executive family, for our harmony and cordiality has really made us but as one family. Jefferson accepted the resignation. Though the post of attorney general was a part-time post, Lincoln had been a trusted advisor the last few years, and Jefferson would have to carefully consider who could serve the administration well after Lincoln left the office on March 3rd. To consider his options, Jefferson turned to his other cabinet members for suggestions. Though Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin put together a list of individuals to consider, he did add in the caveat that, quote, I'm so little acquainted with the characters, etc., of professional gentlemen who have not been in public life that it is not practicable for me to make a good list. Despite this, two of the names on Gallatin's list would also be at the top of Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith's list as well. John Thompson Mason was a Virginia lawyer who had crossed the Potomac to practice law in Georgetown and, after an unsuccessful run for the Maryland House of Delegates in 1800, had been appointed by Jefferson as U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. As Mason had left this position in 1804, both Gallatin and Smith expressed their concerns about whether he would accept a higher position in the administration. The second possibility was a senator who had been a close ally with the Jefferson administration in the first term and who we have discussed in the past, Senator John Breckinridge of Kentucky. Again, though, both Gallatin and Smith had their doubts as to whether Breckinridge would accept. That was okay, though. Smith offered a backup plan. Quote, If neither of these gentlemen can be prevailed upon to accept, I would take the liberty of suggesting to you that I have no attachments to the duties of the office I have now the honor of holding and that a law appointment would be more pleasing to me. Smith's tenure at the Navy Department had been a challenging one. As we've discussed in past episodes and we'll get back to in an upcoming episode, the war with Tripoli had been a major focus for Smith in the first term, and in trying to manage the affairs of his department, Smith had very little help. As noted by historian Leonard White, quote, The civilian branch of the department consisted of the secretary and his office and the accountant and his clerks. Secretary Robert Smith managed with three clerks during most of his term. The accountant before the War of 1812 had less than 10. The secretary had no professional aides or advisors in his office. He was the department. Whatever had to be authorized or done, he authorized and did. At the same time as he was trying to prosecute a naval war on the other side of the Atlantic with minimal help, Smith was constantly barraged by admonitions from Treasury Secretary Gallatin to economize and reduce naval expenditures. Gallatin, with his larger focus on cutting federal government expenditures across the board, could not see how unrealistic of an expectation it was for the Navy to reduce its expenses while prosecuting a war against Tripoli, 
and thus complained to Jefferson as early as 1801 about how the Navy Department was being mismanaged. In January 1803, when discussing a naval appropriation bill to be sent to Congress, Gallatin had concluded that, quote, I cannot discover any approach towards reform in that department. Given the constant criticism and challenge that he had faced in the past few years, it is easy to understand why the part-time position of Attorney General might look appealing to Smith. Beyond just seizing the opportunity that Lincoln's resignation presented, Smith knew that to close the deal, he had to help find someone to fill his position at the Navy Department. As discussed back in Episode 3.6, that had been the toughest position for Jefferson to fill when he first took office and the circumstances that had made it difficult to fill then were still present, if not exacerbated. Who wanted to be head of a department that the administration was committed to lessening in terms of importance? Still, Smith shared with the president that, quote, I have in my view three very respectable gentlemen, either of whom would be fully competent to the duties of the Navy Department and would, I believe, willingly accept. Naturally, Jefferson was interested, and before the month was out, followed up with one of the potential candidates for the Navy Department, Representative Jacob Crowninshield, Democratic-Republican from Massachusetts. A former sea captain, Crowninshield was just set to enter into his second term in the House when Jefferson offered him the position of Secretary of the Navy. On January 24th, Crowninshield wrote to Jefferson that, quote, You will perceive the delicate situation in which I am placed. On the one side, the chief magistrate of a great nation is soliciting me to accept an honorable appointment, an appointment, too, of all others I should most prefer. On the other side, an amiable wife is telling me, if she consults her own inclinations, she cannot advise me to accept the appointment. While he expressed his surprise and how flattered he was to be considered, ultimately, the representative from Massachusetts requested of Jefferson, quote, that I may be permitted to remain where I am. Jefferson, however, did not give up that easily. On the 26th, Jefferson returned the letter with a request for an interview. Maybe he could make a more successful pitch in person. It seems that Crown and Shield feared just that. And thus, on February 20th, he sent Jefferson a couple of letters and included in his note that, quote, I must beg you not to delay a moment on my account, making any other arrangements which you may have in contemplation upon knowing that I'm compelled to decline the appointment with which you wish to honor me. Jefferson replied three days later with, quote, his salutations and asserted that, quote, he must still ask an interview with Mr. Crowninshield. Finally, Crowninshield gave in and agreed to meet Jefferson. And it seems that Jefferson proved to be quite persuasive, for on March 2nd, he sent in Crowninshield's nomination as Secretary of the Navy and Robert Smith's nomination as Attorney General, both of which were confirmed by the Senate that same day. With that settled, Jefferson had to consider what to do about another position that seemed on the verge of becoming vacant. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Around the time that William Burwell agreed to serve as Jefferson's private secretary, the voters in Franklin County, Virginia, elected Burwell to the Virginia State Legislature. Burwell took some time to consider the matter, and on November 29, 1804, he wrote to Jefferson explaining that, quote, It has been suggested to me that some censure will attach to my relinquishment of the seat in the legislature of Virginia to which I was elected. 
However, it seems that he was determined to also continue to serve Jefferson, though realizing that he may have to absent himself at times that Jefferson would need him. Burwell arranged with Secretary of War Henry Dearborn for him to, quote, officiate during my stay in Richmond. It soon became apparent, though, that the situation would be untenable. By January 18th, Burwell was already writing to Jefferson, requesting that he may not have to come to Washington until the spring, citing, quote, the necessity of visiting my friends, my estate, and inspecting the conduct of my agents. Thankfully, Jefferson had enlisted the assistance of a neighbor from Albemarle County named Isaac Coles to temporarily fill in, and thus Coles would be present to witness the Chase impeachment trial as well as the inauguration. Though Jefferson replied asking Burwell to join him at Washington in April, quote, as early as your absence could affect my convenience, one does have to wonder if Jefferson was already starting to consider whether Isaac Coles may need to be asked to fill in as his private secretary on a more permanent basis. Ten days after his inauguration, Jefferson departed from Washington, D.C. to return home to Monticello for the month. But before he did so, he made an appointment that would further the process of establishing a governmental infrastructure in Upper Louisiana. As we discussed in episode 3.20, the Louisiana Purchase had been divided into the Territory of Orleans, which was a good portion of what we now know of as Louisiana, and the District of Louisiana, which was the rest of the land acquired through the Louisiana Purchase. As we have seen, most of the focus in establishing American control over the new lands had been, to that point, focused on the more populous and strategically and economically important Territory of Orleans. But this did not mean that Jefferson didn't have ambitions for the District of Louisiana. Indeed, the Lewis and Clark expedition was intended to gather information about those vast lands and their potential benefits for the United States. This did not mean, however, that there weren't already some non-native settlers in those lands. The non-native population count as of 1804 stood at 7,876 whites and 1,497 blacks. While it would take some time before the administration could turn to implementing a full government and policy for the District of Louisiana, in the interim, control of the district was given to a territorial governor who had already proven to be a trusted agent in advancing Jefferson's policies for the western lands, William Henry Harrison. Since becoming the governor of the Indiana Territory in 1801, Harrison had worked to expand opportunities for settlement in the territory by the acquisition of new lands through negotiations with the native peoples in the territory. By design, though, these negotiations were not carried out on equal footing, and by Jefferson's instructions to Harrison, the governor was to do everything he could to undermine the native people's position prior to negotiating land sessions. On February 27, 1803, Jefferson had written to Harrison that, quote, to promote this disposition to exchange lands which they have to spare and we want, for necessaries which we have to spare and they want, we shall push our trading houses and be glad to see the good and influential individuals among them run in debt, because we observe that when these debts get beyond what the individuals can pay, they become willing to lop them off by a session of lands. When native leaders refused to show up for negotiations, Harrison would refuse to distribute annuities that had been granted under previous treaties unless they attended. And when they showed up, Harrison would use a divide-and-conquer strategy to pit one Native nation's leaders against another until finally there would be a general submission to terms favorable to the United States. Using these methods, Harrison was able to achieve major land sessions in the years 1803 and 1804. 
On June 7, 1803, he concluded a treaty doubling the size of the original tract of land in and around Vincennes, the capital of the territory. Then on August 13th, he signed a treaty with the Cascassias, in which they ceded nearly 8 million acres of what is now southern Illinois. As the Cascassias had been seeking U.S. protection from the Potawatomis since March, Governor Harrison took advantage of this motivation and, in exchange for the land, agreed to provide them protection, quote, provided that the Cascassias did not make war on anyone. As noted by historian Robert Owens, quote, it bears mentioning that William Henry Harrison, like Thomas Jefferson and other leading American officials, did not hate Indians per se. They were certainly ravenous, often patronizing, and even unethical when it came to buying up Indian lands. Unlike their views of blacks, though, they did not draw the strictest of racial lines with Indians. They were more than willing to help Indians who cooperated at treaty negotiations and who were acculturated enough not to threaten the Jeffersonian goal of quote-unquote civilization. As he had proven to be so successful to date in furthering that goal and had a good knowledge of Upper Louisiana from his communications with the Spanish lieutenant governor who had been stationed in St. Louis, having Governor Harrison temporarily in charge of the new district of Louisiana until a more permanent arrangement could be made was strategically sound. Indeed, by June 24, 1804, Harrison wrote a detailed report to the president providing information about the current population and militia strength of the district, as well as making his recommendations for improving the organization of the militia and the territorial governmental structure. Though faced with other official duties as governor of the Indiana Territory and Indian commissioner, as well as personal duties as the father of a still-growing family, with his wife Anna pregnant with her fifth child, Harrison took his role as head of the government of the District of Louisiana seriously, and in October 1804 took a trip to St. Louis to work to establish, quote, the rudiments of territorial government. Though the residents of Louisiana were pleased with, quote, Harrison's relatively hands-off style of government, As President Jefferson entered his second term of office, he sought to advance civilization into the settled parts of Louisiana and thus turned to another agent that had served him in the past and who also had knowledge of the lands of the West. When last we discussed General James Wilkinson in episode 3.25, he was talking with then-Vice President Aaron Burr about the lands in the West. Burr, however, was not the only one in 1804 seeking to glean intelligence from Wilkinson's knowledge. Upon his return to Washington from New Orleans, President Jefferson had consulted with Wilkinson about proposed new Articles of War, which would expand the president's authority as commander-in-chief, as well as information that Wilkinson had brought in the form of his report about and sketch maps of Spanish territory between the Mississippi River and the Rio Grande. In addition to negotiating on the matter of the Floridas, James Monroe's mission to Madrid also included a aim to settle the disputed border between the lands of the Louisiana Purchase and Mexico, and any information that the Jefferson administration could gather on the geography of the area would allow them to send more knowledgeable instructions to Monroe in order to ensure a more favorable result for the U.S. In the summer of 1804, however, Wilkinson would find himself temporarily eclipsed as the greatest expert on the geography of Spanish Mexico in Washington with the arrival of German explorer Alexander von Humboldt in June. Humboldt had traveled to Cihua de Mexico, or as we know it in English, Mexico City, and had been allowed, quote, the rare privilege of examining the government's closely guarded charts and atlases. Humboldt made available to Wilkinson and the administration his chart of the Kingdom of New Spain, which provided intelligence on the geography of the provinces of Tejas and Nuevo Mexico, the two provinces immediately bordering the lands of the Louisiana Purchase. One bit of information gathered from Humboldt and his chart 
was quite interesting to the president. The Lewis and Clark expedition had already set out to find a northern route to the Pacific Ocean, but Humboldt's chart revealed another possible option to the south. According to Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, what it showed was that the Red River rose in the high plateau, as Wilkinson had described, that the narrow ridge of the Rockies lay a little farther west, and that on the other side of the ridge, the land sloped down to California and the Pacific Ocean. We'll come back to this. But just know that Jefferson's ambitions for American exploration of Western North America did not stop at the Lewis and Clark expedition, and that their expedition was not the only American expedition that would explore the lands west of the Mississippi, as we've already seen with the Washita expedition, covered in episode 3.235. Turning back to Wilkinson, he would spend the rest of 1804 in the East, and as the Jefferson administration and Congress planned the territorial organization of the District of Louisiana, would be on hand when the president nominated him in January as the governor of the soon-to-be-formed territory. Though a number of members in the cabinet, including Treasury Secretary Gallatin, had their doubts about Wilkinson, the general's cause was supported by Postmaster General Gideon Granger, who described Wilkinson as, quote, one of the most agreeable, best-informed, most genteel, moderate, and sensible Republicans in the nation. Now, there was the problem of Wilkinson still retaining his military commission and thus being the senior officer of the U.S. Army, a fact that was criticized in Congress as being, quote, anti-Republican to unite civil and military office in one person. But to Jefferson, it was a strategic appointment. According to historian Theodore Crackle, quote, Jefferson meant this to be a temporary expedient, a transition from the formal military rule under Captain Stoddart to a full civilian government. There were advantages in this transitory arrangement. The Army was particularly suited for the special missions of exploration that Jefferson and Secretary of War Henry Dearborn desired to undertake. As it had been for the Lewis and Clark expedition, St. Louis was anticipated to be key to the planning, equipping, and launching of multiple expeditions to gain more knowledge about the newly acquired Western lands. And who better than Wilkinson, with his knowledge of the West, as well as his military authority, to be on hand to direct these efforts? Thus, when Congress on March 3, 1805, finalized the bill creating the Territory of Louisiana, Wilkinson became the territorial governor on an ad interim basis. As we've discussed in the past, though, Wilkinson's efforts leading up to his preparation to take on this additional role were not just on behalf of the United States. During his time in Washington in 1804, General Wilkinson briefed Spanish minister to the U.S. Arujo on two occasions about the administration's plans for the West. The news in early 1805 that he was to be named as the territorial governor of Louisiana was an even greater boon to the Spanish cause. Again, from Linkletter, quote, As tensions about the border grew angrier in the early months of 1805, leading to talk of war, the advantage of having Agent 13 in command of the U.S. Army and governor of a border province must have seemed unmistakable to his Spanish handlers. That is, of course, if this secret agent, who had left their employ once before, could actually be trusted to be on their side should hostilities break out between the U.S. and Spain. There was also one other X factor to take into consideration in terms of Wilkinson's loyalties. The third option of breaking away from both the U.S. and Spain. Many Americans were interested in the possibility of an independent Western nation, including some who were already in the West. 
John Adair had served with Wilkinson in the Revolutionary War and had been a part of the effort in South Carolina to ratify the U.S. Constitution before moving west to Kentucky and becoming a member and later Speaker of the State House of Representatives. For someone who had played such key roles in the early days of the United States, though, Adair was disappointed in the new nation and had ambitions for a new path forward further west. As he wrote to Wilkinson in December 1804, quote, The Kentuckians are full of enterprise and, although not poor, as greedy after plunder as ever the old Romans were. Mexico glitters in our eyes. The word is all we wait for. Adair felt that the U.S. should have declared war on Spain already in order to take Mexico. But despite the failures of Jefferson to act, Adair saw another person as key to moving his ambitions forward. Adair wanted General Wilkinson to introduce him to the, as of March 4, 1805, former Vice President Aaron Burr. Wilkinson responded that when he next saw Adair, quote, I will tell you all, we must have a peep at the unknown world beyond me. As noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomas, quote, In the Western country, the attractive Vice President was still popular and respected, and Wilkinson, being aware of that, convinced someone else we've met in the podcast to talk with Burr in early 1805 about the possibility of relocating to the West in order to revive his political career. Wilkinson's agent in this plan was none other than Representative Matthew Lyon, Democratic-Republican from Kentucky. Hold on, you say. Hadn't Matthew Lyon been dubbed the Beast of Vermont? Yes, when we last encountered Lyon back in the Adams administration, he had represented the state of Vermont in the House of Representatives, but he had moved west to Kentucky in 1801 and, after a brief stint in the Kentucky House of Representatives, had been elected to represent the Bluegrass State at the federal level starting in 1803. What better person than someone who had made the move himself and who, like Burr, was no stranger to scandal to convince the outgoing vice president that it could be done? However, Burr wasn't sure if his future was in the United States. He was casting a wide net of possibilities, and one of those options entailed a visit with British minister to the U.S., Anthony Mary. Burr's first communication to Mary was through an intermediary, Colonel Charles Williamson, a former British Army officer. Williamson had first approached the British government in 1803 about an idea he had of launching an expedition against French and Spanish colonies in the New World to foment an uprising against the authorities there, an action that was dubbed filibustering. It was while he was lobbying British officials that he first made Mary's acquaintance. The British Foreign Secretary until May 1804, Lord Hawkesbury, had given Mary instructions to aid in Williamson's filibustering plans, and thus, When Williamson approached him in early August 1804, Mary heard him out. This time, though, Williamson was not just speaking on his own behalf. He had come to share with the British minister, quote, Burr's willingness to aid in detaching the Western states from the United States. From historian Malcolm Lester, quote, Whether this was Burr's main interest cannot be determined, but he recognized that the British might well be interested in his offer and that that interest might be turned to his advantage in promoting other enterprises, such as expeditions against Spanish America. As we've discussed previously, European powers, including Great Britain, had at times interfered in affairs in the American lands west of the Appalachian Mountains in order to keep the U.S. weak and further their own ambitions in North America. Thus, it was entirely plausible that the British might be amenable to assisting with such a scheme. However, 
When Mary sent a top-secret report back to his government about this discussion, the British minister, despite earlier dispatches proposing exerting influence in the West to break it away from the eastern states of the Union, did not express his opinion on Burr and Williamson's scheme one way or another, but rather left the matter to the Pitt ministry to decide how to respond. If it sounds like Burr was a bit desperate in piecing together all these various schemes, it's because he was. Not only was his political career in ruins, though he did earn back a small degree of respect in the judicious way he presided over the Chase impeachment trial, Burr's financial state was quite precarious in early 1805. His creditors had pressured him to sell his Richmond Hill estate on the island of Manhattan, but even with that, he still had $8,000 in unpaid debts. Meanwhile, there were still charges against him in both New Jersey and New York. To top it all, on March 4th, Burr sat in the gallery of the Senate chamber and watched as George Clinton assumed the office that he had once held. In true Burr fashion, though, as noted by one observer present that day, Burr had surrounded himself in the gallery with the company of ladies. Burr may have been in a difficult place, but he would press forward. Soon after leaving office, Burr sent a message to Elizabeth Mary, the British minister's wife, informing her of his intent to drop by to pay his respects, and he used this opportunity to talk with her husband in person about his plans. As Mary reported back to his government, not only did Burr have in mind, quote, an expedition against Mexico, but he also wanted to approach Americans in the western lands, particularly the citizens in the Louisiana Purchase, to see if they wanted to break away from the U.S. and join with Mexico to form a new western empire. As Mary wrote, quote, It is clear that Mr. Burr, although he has not as yet confided to me the exact nature and extent of his plans, means to endeavor to be the instrument of effecting such a connection between these disparate citizens in the West. Burr also pointed out that, to carry out these plans, the support of a great power would be crucial. And if Britain did not agree to lend their aid, well, there was another great power, France. While this might seem like a grandiose scheme, there was reason to believe it might just be a viable plan at the time. As Burr biographer Milton Lomas describes, quote, that the Creoles of New Orleans were fiercely discontented under their new government was common knowledge. Not only had the Congress refused them instant statehood, it had put severe limits on the importation of slaves into Louisiana, a troubling edict to an economy dependent on its rice, indigo, and cotton plantations. If the former vice president was to be believed, the citizens of New Orleans were ready to revolt at any moment and were just waiting to know which of the great powers, Britain or its enemy France, would act as their benefactor. Naturally, Mary started probing for information about what would be required for a revolt in Louisiana. Burr believed the plan could be carried out with two or three frigates as well as two or three smaller vessels guarding the mouth of the Mississippi River and a loan of 100,000 pounds. It would take time for Mary to transmit all this to the Pitt ministry and receive a response, and Burr had no intention of sitting around D.C. waiting. In a move that seems rather brazen, considering that he was talking about launching a rebellion in Mexico, Burr sent word Spanish minister to the U.S. Arujo asking for a passport to Mexico to allow him to settle in that region. Arujo had already granted him a passport to travel to the Floridas, but now, according to Arujo, Burr was claiming, quote, that the death of General Hamilton, whom he killed in a duel, did not permit him to remain in the United States. Though Arujo denied this request, Burr still called on the Spanish minister to talk with him about his plans. 
Now the former vice president said that he was going to go to New Orleans before venturing to West Florida and travel overland to St. Augustine. Whether his plans were evolving according to circumstances or he was intentionally trying to redirect attention from his true plans, Burr's shifting request had aroused the Rujo's suspicions, and he wrote to his government that he felt that Burr was acting as an agent of the British government to gather information about Spanish activities in the Gulf region. Despite these concerns, there was nothing Erujo or anyone else could do to prevent Burr from moving forward and setting his plans in motion. By March 21st, the former vice president was in Philadelphia awaiting General Wilkinson. As Wilkinson would also be headed west in order to take up his new post in St. Louis, the two planes traveled together as far as the Mississippi River with Burr proceeding on to New Orleans. Along the way, there would be plenty of time for the two to talk. We'll leave Burr waiting for Wilkinson as our time together is drawing to a close. Though we'll be shifting our attention in the next episode, rest assured that there will be plenty more to talk about with Burr. Until then, though, I'd like to take a moment to again thank Roderick Gost for providing the intro quote for this episode. His email address, as well as a link to the Zoom Shakespeare Company's page on Facebook, can be found on the Source Notes page for this episode. Special thanks also to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. As I'm hoping to pick up the pace in making my way through the Jefferson series, his assistance is going to be invaluable. If you would like to get Andrew's assistance for your podcast or any other audio editing project you may be working on, he can be reached at P-A-N-K-A-C-E place, that's all one word, at gmail.com. I'll have Andrew's email address as well as the sources used for this episode on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, Com. The website is also a source that you can turn to for past episodes of the podcast, additional resources in researching every U.S. president, and ways that you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support the podcast. We have a partnership with the Hero Soap Company that can go to support the podcast, or if you'd like to help me get additional sources to use for future episodes, I do have a book wish list available. If you'd like to contribute monthly to the podcast, I have a Patreon page set up, which is available at patreon.com slash presidencies. Special thanks to our newest patron, Joshua, and to all of our patrons for their help in ensuring that this podcast continues to be freely available to all. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to send my way, you can email me at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me on social media if you're not already. I'm available on Facebook at presidencies on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. It's always great to hear from listeners of the podcast as well as fellow podcasters, so please feel free to reach out. Finally, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade 
acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.